1964, there was a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese who was murdered outside her apartment building in Queens, New York. So it was, they say, like pretty much right outside her door. And I mean, the fact of the matter is there are Sadly, whether it be New York City, here, or many places around the world, there are lots of crimes that happen, um, and not all of them are remembered and talked about. But what made her story particularly popular and which studied and talked about very often is this. 37 people saw her murder, and they didn't call the police. All 37 of these people are said to have been her neighbors who lived in her complex, and even some of them were have said to look out of their window and watch her be stabbed to death yet nobody did anything. And so out of confusion, well, first of all, the police had to investigate what, like, what happened, who, uh, who committed the crime, why is it that it took so long for the police to respond, why is it that nobody called, and, and they say that she could have been saved uh, had the uh, ambulance been able to get there quicker, but nobody called. And so if you've taken a sociology class or ever studied sociology, uh, you may have heard this story before. And what they say, and they use this now, I mean, I learned about it like decades later. Uh, sociologists call it the bystander effect or the diffusion of responsibility. Essentially what happens is when there's a large group of people and there isn't necessarily one person who is tasked with the thing that needs to be done, the more people there are, the less responsible you feel. So the diffusion of responsibility and you become a bystander, the bystander effect, instead of a participant in what's happening. So when they look at the murder of Kitty and the fact that there was 37 neighbors, people who probably knew her, none of them called the police. They found that it wasn't just because her neighbors were all like, they hated her, they were cruel or, or cold, heartless individuals, but they just all expected, oh, somebody must have already called. There's all these other people watching her. Surely the police are on their way. So instead of rushing to the phone and calling 911, they just looked and like, oh my gosh, like, when are the police going to get here? And then it ended up that nobody called and then she died. When there are large groups of people and a task that needs to be done, the more individuals there are, the more likely it is that we become bystanders instead of becoming actors in the story itself. And we've been going over this new sermon series that we're calling Church Without Walls, Cornerstones, New Mission and Vision. And what I wanted to start off this morning with is to talk about how we're likely to do that as well. The the pastors will come up here every Sunday. We'll talk about how we really want to accomplish this. In three years, our goal is X. In five years, our goal is Y. The way that we want our church to be perceived by the outside is in this way. But if it's just up to the leadership and to those who are heavily invested, we will not accomplish the task. Not only should we not do that, but we cannot do that without every single person participating. And so as I come up here, I, wanna, I know that sometimes on Sunday sermons we, we disconnect and sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, that sermon was just for me. I felt like God was talking to me. I hope that that is the feeling that every single one of us gets this morning in this series, that this sermon is in fact for you. So that we're asking each and every person who comes through Cornerstone's door to not be a bystander to this mission being fulfilled but being a participant and a partner in ministry for this mission statement and vision statement to be fulfilled. So I'm going to be doing line two in our, in our vision statement. We're going a little bit out of order, but you know, we'll get them all. And that is in the yellow right there, sharing our lives together while breaking down barriers. We envision Cornerstone Church to be a church that shares our lives together while letting no barrier get in the way. And we're going to actively break them so they do not get in the way. 
So to learn a little bit about this, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2. So if you would open up your Bibles or you can look up on the screen with me, we're going to be reading Ephesians 2 in the New Testament from verses 11 through verses 22. All right, starting from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who, are, who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Oops built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here's where we're going, pretty simply in this sermon, in three parts. Who we were in those verses right there, how Jesus transforms us, and who we are called to be. Pretty simple. Who we were, how he transforms us, and who we're called to be. So starting with who we were. Let's read these verses again. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the uncircumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, uh, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so Paul starts off this passage about, like I just mentioned, who we were. And and in a way, it's kind of harsh to listen to. Uh, You ever run into an old friend who like knew you when you were a kid or while you were going through puberty and you don't want to talk to them because all they do is bring up how awkward you were back then? It's like, oh my God, like how long has it been? Like you were so chubby back then. You had acne all over. Remember how you used to dress? Like, you know those people that you want to avoid because they bring up all this bad stuff in the past? Well, Paul kind of does that except in a much worse level. I know that most of us to be called fat is probably the worst thing we could ever hear. But he takes that much worse than physical appearance. He says, look, there, you were Gentiles by birth. You were the, when he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, what he's doing is pointing out the people who are physically marked off as, exclu- as the um, people of God and those who are uncircumcised as people who are excluded or estranged from relationship with Yahweh. So although it's a little bit weird and you know, we don't have that practice anymore, He's talking about people who are in and people who are out. People who belong and people who have no business being there. People who are separated. And if that's not 
bad enough, if he hasn't piled up enough of the old, remember you were this, remember you were that, look at what he does. He says we are separate from Christ. He says you were excluded from citizenship. You were a foreigner. You were without hope and without God. In English, the without God, in Greek it's one word where we get our root for atheist or atheism. It's like Paul went to his thesaurus and was like, how many synonyms can I come up with to make sure that they get the picture that they were not apart they were, be, they were foreigners, excluded, separated. And to me, what seems the harshest, without hope, without God. And Paul is saying the truth here, albeit a little blunt. This was you. This was me. This was all of us, Cornerstone. Each and every single one of us is estranged from God and separated without hope and without him. And as we read through, though, Paul's objective isn't to discourage us, but to in fact encourage us, to show us the great divide of separation that Jesus actually bridged, to actually make us think or realize that your life didn't, it wasn't this small little adjustment or change that all of a sudden on Sundays you're now busy instead of sleeping in. This is complete upheaval of your life, complete change, complete newness. Look at what he says. This could not just be a favorite verse of this passage. This could potentially be your favorite verse, period, in the Bible. Look at what this says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can I get like a nod or an amen? Let's rewind, right? Separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, without God, without hope. That is you, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thanks, appreciate it. I, ho- I hope you underline, like, like rip the page through your Bible. Man, does he get to the point of how excluded we really were but now we're being brought close because of his blood. And so this is the on-ramp for how he starts transforming us. So we go into verse 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. All right, so how does he transform us? What is, he, brought, he brings us near by his blood. He puts to death hostility by the cross. And how, what is the fruit? He mentions it four times in these few verses. He says, peace, 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 peace. The fruit of Jesus' transformation in our lives is that he brings us peace. And what I love about this passage and the way that Paul writes it, he doesn't say he introduced peace. He doesn't say he told you to be peaceful. He doesn't say he commands you be peaceful. He says he himself is our peace. So it's in and through Jesus that we have peace. And it's that peace that we have with each other. Verse 16, he says, He reconciled both of them through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. When we think about the original audience that Paul is writing to, let's think about who they were. So this whole Christianity thing is new, right? 
They grew up Jewish in the Jewish faith, and all of a sudden, when it was the people of God, marked by circumcision like he meant before, now it's open to everybody. Jesus comes on the scene and he says that this is for Jew and for Gentile the same. And think about how hard that actually must have been for them in the beginning. They grew up their entire lives, their ancestors upon ancestors upon ancestors, about all the practices that were meant to exclude them. Right? We were the people of God. We were the one who circumcised our men, which is a symbol of being in the family of God. There was all these cultural rules of, of separation, essentially, the cleanliness laws, where Jews were allowed to go and were not allowed to. And if they did, what they had to do to cleanse themselves and, and purify themselves properly. What they could and could not eat with kosher laws. Celebrations of particular observance of days of remembrance that they had in their past that no other people had. It was theirs. So it was culture and, and thing upon thing upon thing that made them separate And now Paul is saying, you're not separate anymore. You're all together. So you can imagine that it's hard for them. By the time that Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and which was actually meant for many, multiple churches, it wasn't even just their practices. It was the temple that was also uh, had walls set up, literally. So in the Old Testament, Solomon builds the temple, right? And there was only two things. It was separation between the priests, separation between the laity, By the time the temple gets destroyed and up and rebuilt and the walls and everything comes back, but the Spirit of the Lord does not come back in the New Testament temple, there's actually more walls that separated further the outer and the inner courts in multiple levels. So historians say that on the walls of some of the inner courts, there was in Greek and Latin inscribed that a non-Jew who passes this could be executed by law. And apparently the Romans who were in charge were fine with that. And they even said that if a Jew brought a non-Jew and surpassed the proper wall, that both of them legally would be executed. So there's clear division. There's separation. Can you imagine? So let's think of if we segregated this space. What if the welcoming team, when you came in, were like, uh, what school do you go to? And you're like, oh, BU. Oh, BU. You're going to go sit back over there. And uh, BC students over here, if you are this age, from 30 to above, you sit in this corner. And if somebody walks up to you, oh, are you 21? Oh, sorry, you have to sit over there on this side of the balcony. Can you imagine how offended you would be if we separated you in this building, the worship space? Yet Paul is writing to a people whose temple was literally separated by physical walls. And if you surpass them, they were mandated by law that you could be accused and executed. So who he's talking to, when he is talking to a community and he says things like dividing wall, when Paul says barrier, when he says hostility, when he says excluded and far away, they know exactly what he's talking about. They're living in a culture that is so divided where there's thick separation and tension between groups, seeing each other not as brother and sister, but seeing them as the other. And what does Paul say? Jesus comes to transform all of that, to bring peace, 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 peace into his church, to bring the two and make them one, to by his cross destroy hostility. We don't have walls in this church, and we even talk about it in our vision statement, right? We don't don't go beyond that. We don't want to have walls. And somebody in the welcoming team didn't say, oh, are you this ethnic background? You should sit over here or over there. But we definitely have our barriers too, right? 
Maybe ours are a little bit more subtle, which in my opinion maybe makes it a little bit more dangerous than physical walls that are in front of you that you can't miss. I'm going to talk about three barriers that we have that I know for sure because you told me, to, you told me that we have them. And Pastor Hojin and Pastor Bill and I all hear the same things with every generation that comes through Cornerstone. A barrier and wall that keeps us from sharing life in Jesus together is our age and our life stage. How many years have come by where college students say, oh, I want to get to know the young adults better. And the young adults say, I want to get to know the married couples better. And the married couples are like, we don't even know what we're doing. We don't know anybody because we have babies. And then everyone's saying that this group and this group and this group is being exclusive. While no group themselves are saying, how are we being exclusive? It's always the young adults are too cool for school to invest in maybe mentor the college students. It's always that the, the families, like they're not investing in us, in us young adults because we want to know how to get like them and find marriage and be healthy. But nobody actually looks at their own group and says, how are we building walls? It's always what the other life stage is doing improperly. It's always what the other life stage could do better. But rarely is it the college students banding together to say, hey, we do travel in packs. How can we actually get to uh, open up our literal, even physical circles and invite young adults in so we can learn from them? A barrier that we have here is clearly race and ethnicity. Many of you who are new here, you just notice that there's a lot of Korean faces, but you don't know that the reason we got, when when we planted this church 11 years ago, Uh, We came out of an English-speaking service ministry from a Korean church. So naturally, the leadership and the pastor came, and they were all Korean, but decided to plant not a Korean church. They just looked that way. And for most of you who are Korean, I am myself. I grew up in a town that was 94% white. I was always the minority, and I still am until I'm here. And so I don't know what it feels like to be the majority ever, other than two hours on a Sunday morning. And many of you, that's the same case. But what you don't realize is when you do put on the majority hat, you do have a responsibility to break barriers. By being sensitive about the language that you use, the jokes that we say, the TV shows that we're always talking about and the inside jokes that other people who are not Korean would never have a chance or reason to watch. We're not a Korean church. So if you are a majority, if you are in that place of privilege, how are you actually putting up walls? And what we're not saying is strip yourself of your identity. We want you to speak Korean and use, watch Korean shows and do your Korean things. We're not saying don't be you. What we're saying is pay attention to who's next to you. It's not a stripping of your identity. It's being sensitive to the identity of the person seated here. There's a very big difference. And the third that we know, because you have emailed and told me, Hojin and Bill, over and over, our interests big common one is jock culture. How many churches have flag football tournaments all the time? And that's a major announcement that we're playing football. And a lot of people have come through our doors and they say, oh, well, you know, we just didn't connect and we decided to go to a different church because it just seems like all everybody cares about is sports and I'm not athletic and I feel like I can't participate. We actually love the fact that we play sports here and we're going to even make it bigger. We're investing in it further. We love it. We think it's godly, and we, we, I think we model it godly. But when it becomes divisive, it means that we're being really myopic in our view and being un- insensitive to the people who don't like that kind of stuff. And we want to o- further open our doors so people are welcome. Not just, hey, you just get better at it and figure it out. But how can we also bend to you? And the other major interest that's honestly kind of... 
I don't, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, or Dan, I could use Danny, right? Danny Downer, D, D, is our drinking culture. I know that many of you, you wouldn't put it on your Facebook uh, interests, but literally by the usage of your time, your interest is going out. And the number of times we hear as a pastoral staff, the people get, like, get stumbled by this abuse. And the fact that church, we do it together. We literally build walls that keep the people of God from sharing life in Jesus. We need to start breaking them. We need to start being less concerned about me and much more sensitive to you and you and you and you if we're going to really be about the brother and the sister, if we're really going to be about Jesus' purpose, because he came to break hostility and to make sure that nothing kept person A from person B and nothing keeps you from you and you from you and all of us are connected by the blood of Christ. Look at how explicit Paul gets in this passage. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of two thus making peace, and in one body, look at all the singular language, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And when it comes to hostility, that's the thing that I didn't mention yet, right? The obvious, the gossiping and slandering about, uh, of other people, the holding on to bitterness, the not forgiving, the cutting people off because, okay, I've just given them too many ch- chances. I didn't even mention that yet, did I? Jesus came in his purpose for the church was to unify us and to break any wall. And what we're hoping as a church and what I'm asking and the leadership is asking is that you do not be a bystander, but that you be a participant and a partner in ministry in making this church a place where we literally share our lives to Jesus while going around and busting doors open that keep us from each other. That's what we want to be. That's where we're going. That's where we're inviting you. Hey, come along with us. And we hope that you can partner. So who are we called to be? I mean, I just kind of talked about that. Verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place, in which God lives by his spirit. All right, you don't have to say amen, but this is another one of those amen moments because if we look at what Paul just did, if we read from verse to 11 to 22, it was like, what, 90 seconds, right? Maybe some of you are speed readers, and you, just, and you read it in five. In the beginning, he says, you're strangers, you're foreigners, you're excluded, you're Gentile. And then a few seconds later, we're reading, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22 is with the key to me. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. We're called to be bearers of God's peace as as he transforms us, he takes dwelling inside of you. We want to be the ones to do what Jesus would do if he were here on earth because we are his representatives, because we're his hands and feet, And because as his purpose was to bring peace, to destroy barriers, to put to death hostility, that's our call now. So in application, how do we not 
be a bystander, but be a participant. First, and the most obvious, and you've heard us say this again and again, and you will hear us say, that, say it in the future, is we need to go and break hostility and be peaceful with one another. And those of you, many of you in this room know who you are not at peace with right now. We need to go and find that person, even if they're unapologetic, and say, I want to love you in the way that Christ has loved me, regardless of whether you say sorry. And let's just talk it out and understand each other better. Let's not allow the wall to remain standing. Secondly, we need to invest what we're asking. And this is something that we're actually going to measure. Literally, the leadership and the staff, we're going to count heads and see how we progress because we want to see if we're really doing a good job is investing in our community. The first is to be part of a community group or small group. And I know it's like, oh my goodness, like how many times are y'all going to say that? But, but hear me out. If you're not a part of, so this is for both of you who are not a part of something like that and those of you who are. For many people, whether they aren't or whether they are and they're just like not feeling it, we, I hear it so often, it's like, oh, like, okay, like I get it. I'm supposed to be in a midweek small group, but like all it is, a bunch of people sitting around a circle and we just go around saying, yeah, I'm tired from work. And then Jane says, oh, I'm tired from work. And then Bobby says, oh, I'm tired from work. So why do I want to go to that when it's just that? Right? That's why I didn't sign up. And that's why when I did sign up, I don't go often. Well, the thing is, if everybody is invested, that's not really investment, is it? That's just being a body, And if everybody decides that that's what their participation is, that's what it's going to become. Every year, we always have one community group in the young adults that is such a blessing. It's a surprise. They stand out, and everybody wants to be a part of their group. Last year, it was the women's group. The women, right? Like, the women's group. They had t-shirts. They loved each other. Why? Was it because they were women and they made sweatshirts? No. It was because each person saw their community group not as, I'm tired from work, but how am I going to go and be a blessing to the people there? I'm committed to every Wednesday. I will be there in my body. I will participate. I do care about the other people, whether they come. I will pray for them. It's not rocket science when community groups blow up and they're successful. It's because individuals turn into an invested group. So if you are not a part of a community group or small group on campus because, oh, it's that, well, go make it not that. And if you are a part of one right now and it's hard for you to be there, Commit to it and encourage other people to be committed as well. We're literally going to measure this. And secondly, how can we respond to Paul's call and for our vision statement to be a a church that shares life together in Jesus while breaking barriers? First miniature step, which is, I mean, some of you might say it's not breaking barriers at all, is to go beyond your life stage. Go to a young adult person and say, hey, can we eat dinner together? And can I hear about your story? Go to a mom and dad and ask them about how they're growing through the challenges of parenthood. Go to, some, to, a, to a college student and say, hey, like, what's difficult for you now in balancing college life and how can I help you with the experience that I had? Give somebody a ride. Give somebody a birthday gift, a card. Support somebody to go to the young adult retreat. Let's intertwine more on purpose, not just because we happen to be in the same room, but because you chose to. That's step one. We need to start breaking the barrier that keeps us from sharing our lives fully together. This past summer, uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I, uh, we went to Jerusalem uh, for 
a, uh, for vacation, or for our, uh, for our anniversary vacation. And some of you have heard me my spiel about like credit card points, and some of you are like my bros in that. And, what, and our approach was that we would stay in, I really wanted to stay in really nice hotels because if you can't afford it, but you have points to do it, like that's how you live like, the life of the rich and famous. And so what we did was I set aside a big bulk of points for the last day. We would stay in, you know, moderately nice hotels, but the last day we were going to be ballers, right? So we ended up staying in a Waldorf Astoria, Jerusalem, which is Hilton's luxury line. For, and the people who pay cash pay $900 a night for the, minim, for the smallest bedroom. And so this is a picture of the lobby that we stayed at. We're like, yo, where's Kardashians at, right? Like, you know, like, and it's just me, like, just like lowly pastor from Boston. Anyway, so in order to get there, uh, we left our, our normal, ho- normal people hotel, and, went, and we were like, oh, it's, we Google mapped in. It's just right around the corner. So we're like, we're not going to get a cab. We'll just walk. So I'm dressed like, I mean, you, you guys know me. Like, I'm a scrub, right? This is, like, nice, right? I'm dressed in, like, basketball shorts and my Red Sox hat, and we're dragging our suitcases across Jerusalem, just like less than a mile. And we're like, there's, you know, it's big, right? So there's all these doors, and we're like, which one do we go in? And so we're looking around, and then there's uh, like bellboys and guys standing at one door. Okay, so that's the entrance. So we approach, and this is what we see. So this is what we're talking about. It's like, oh, look how fancy. The guy's got an Abraham Lincoln hat, right? Like, this is this fancy, this guy right here. You see that? So we're approaching, and I want you to picture, we're sweaty. This is Jerusalem. It's hot. It's July. I'm carrying my suitcase. I'm looking in basketball shorts. And everybody who's going before us, they're like, welcome, sir. Right? Like, and then we approach, and they keep the door closed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm serious. And, well, it wasn't him, but the guy who was also wearing the hat, he stands in front of the door and does this. Hello. And we're like, is this the entrance to the Waldorf? He's like, Yes can we get in? He's like, do you have a reservation? We're like, yeah. He's like, oh, okay. And then he, he lets us in. So we're like, what the, right? Like, that was rude. And so we get into the line, we're checking in, and in the process, he notices that we're legitimately checking in. The lady is scanning our cards, writing our name, taking our passport, and all of a sudden, he's like, oh, hello, sir. Have you gotten checked in before? Or like, let me, do you want some water? Oh, bellboy, bags. And he, he like completely transforms, and now he's like kissing our butts. So from then on, we, have, we get lavished, right? This is why you should save up points and stay at baller hotels. <laughs> we get lavished, friends, okay? So the guy takes us. This, it's a Scottish guy. All these people with beautiful accents comes, and he brings us upstairs, opens the door for us. Like, the bags come in, and then they're like, oh, and, oh, and uh, maybe in about half an hour, so we'll bring you some fruit. I'm like, okay, like, thanks for the fruit, right? And we leave. We come back into our room. This is the fruit. There's fruit, but there's a personalized letter, Mr. and Mrs. You, and there's wine and chocolates. That's what they call fruit. So we're like, what the heck? If we call up more toilet paper, are they going to bring us, like, down comforter? Like, wipe my butt with that? Like, fruit. this is fruit, right? So they, they laid out slippers for us. Like, ah, I didn't put up more. You should have seen our bathroom. Go on Energy's Facebook. The bathroom is like this. There's a tub and there's a shower that's like a rainfall. And we're like, oh, my gosh, where are we? And they lavish us. The thing above all that, that would just like blew my mind was they memorized our names. It's like, what? How many people are staying in this hotel? We're walking out and they're like, oh, Mr. Yoon, how are you? I'm like, so what the heck? And they're like, Linji, how are you? I'm like, how did he know how to pronounce her name? 
It's usually like Yoonji, right? Or Unji, right? Like, she, he's like, he, did he like study Korean in the past 10 minutes? We get lavished and it just completely just transforms our situation. And one thing that like we sat home and we just, or like we were just like relaxing, we thought was how great of a contrast there was when we were seen as a stranger versus when we were seen as a guest. He literally blocked us at the door and looked down. And all of a sudden, because we had a key, it was like, it's like swans and fountains and like red petals being thrown in front of us along the way. The thing is, friends, when we, when we, when we think about, if we compare the way that Jesus treats you, in, the, in my hotel experience, right, it's so much beyond that. Because the guy judged me based upon my basketball shorts and the fact that I was sweaty and didn't come in a cab. But Jesus, he sees all of our ugliness to the fullest extent that you don't even realize. I know many of us are really hard on ourselves for our sin and we're ashamed. We're like, oh, I wish I could be a better Christian. Jesus sees the ugliness beyond that. But he doesn't treat you that way. He doesn't judge you that way. He doesn't keep you out and he doesn't keep you in this way that you were. The Gentile, the uncircumcised, the estranged, the excluded, the without hope, the without God. He doesn't allow that status in you be what he actually sees you in the way that he cares for you. And on the flip side, yes, we were lavished, but I paid. I was a customer. And as soon as my checkout time elapsed, I was nothing to them. If Jesus is the king of heaven's hotel... He just doesn't say, oh, come in and stay and here's some water and some chocolates and here's some fruit that comes with a bottle of wine. He says, here's the keys. You actually own this place too and benefit from the prophets. Paul talks about in the New Testament how we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, meaning that you own the building. When we think about the extent of barrier that Jesus overcame for you, And if you can confidently sit here this morning, friends, and say, that is me. I am once an estranged person who has been made an heir with Christ, a co-heir with Christ, a brother or a sister of Christ, receiving all the great blessings of heaven, having the keys literally being handed to me and being lavished when I am unbroken and unworthy. What can possibly keep us from not extending that kind of love to each other? As people who have been given great status because Jesus broke the barriers, let's go and do that together. Let's go above and beyond to share life together. If You might not be here in five years for Cornerstone, but I hope that you get emails or update letters or you visit Cornerstone in five years and you're like, oh my goodness, not a barrier in sight. Just sharing life. Jesus, Paul says it in the, last, in the second, third, last verse, that Jesus is our cornerstone. He brings us together, and now you are a brick and a part of that building. So let's do our part in the way that Jesus has broken the barriers and brought us near. Let's start making peace in the way that he brought peace to us. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Jesus, we thank you that at every cost, literally, because you ended up giving up your life, you didn't want there to be a divide, a chasm, a barrier between us and the Father. So again, you went to every cost so that we could share with you and with him and with the Spirit and have fullness of relationship with our triune God. You went to every cost, and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, though we are sinful and we can have ugliness inside of our, our hearts, Lord God, that you saw us as valuable. You saw us as beautiful and precious because Jesus' blood washes us white as snow. And in the way that you have brought peace to us, in the way that you have brought us strangers and you've made us close, in the way that you have put to death hostility, we want to be your hands and feet that do the same in our church and outside of it. In our campuses, in our workplaces, in our dorms, in our apartments, in our cubicles. Everywhere we go, we want to be a people who are just looking out to share life together in Jesus' name and to break barriers that you purposed, oh God, to, to, to destroy. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of peace. And we pray for Cornerstone that we would be a church of great peace in Jesus' name. Lord, teach all of us what it means to be a participant. Make it clear what all of our role might be. Make each and every one of us an investor so that we do grow and see this not just be talked about, but come to fruition. Because ultimately, Lord, our mission and vision being accomplished is not so that we can clap or applaud for ourselves because we believe it's the vision and mission you gave us that would bring you most worship. And so, Lord, we want to bring you worship. We commit this to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.